I'm Debbie Draper from the Clinical Excellence Commission and I'm pleased that you can join me for this three-part series with Dr. Andrea Christoph and David Sweeney. This podcast is part two of a series on creating safety in M&M discussions. In this segment, we will explore facilitation for psychological safety and David will be having a conversation with Andrea around how facilitation enables psychological safety in M&M meetings. I mean, this includes the importance of having transparency and openness around what's going to be discussed to make sure that clinicians know what to expect even before they come into a meeting. Andrea will give some practical examples of the importance of relationships and trust um, and how to foster a culture of speaking up for safety within teams. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Uh, Through a process of looking at um, uh, the research and the evidence base, Uh, across the world, we've come up with these eight standards, which really focus in on eight areas of practice in facilitation, but a lot of those areas of practice or facilitation could also be transposed to the way in which people exercise leadership. So first of all, we're thinking about purpose and the importance of starting with purpose, any of our leadership activity, any of our facilitation activity has to start with purpose. We also have to create the right environment, the right container for um, good work to happen, and that requires psychological safety. It also requires the creation of effective relationships across disciplines, across uh, uh, subject matters, and the application of highly effective leadership and facilitation skills in the moment. And that requires us to consider multiple perspectives. So the different stakeholder perspectives who need to be brought together in order for good facilitation to take place, we need to understand their uh, position, their interests, their uh, concerns in order to be able to work alongside those stakeholders and um, uh, create the right environment for facilitation to take place. And I think one of the other keys to that is not only having the people in the room, but actually having the structure around, they know what they're coming into the room for. Um, So we sending out the cases in advance and letting them reflect on it and even um, catching up with them prior to the meeting to have a conversation when I review the cases for morbidity, for example, I'm not the clinician necessarily that was involved. And if I was involved, I don't actually do the facilitation because I think I create inherent bias into the review if I was the doctor on that was the core person during um, the patient's stay in the intensive care unit. So get someone else to review it because uh, I think that's really key as we don't know when we look at something retrospectively. Um, we actually apply that retrospective review bias to that case. Yeah. And, and I think it's really important having the people in the room that can actually speak to what happens in the moment. Yes. So that's an interesting uh, issue that you raised there, which is that you have a particular position, don't you, in relation to the uh, morbidity and mortality meeting. You're the, the chair of that uh, uh, meeting, that committee. But there are times when you um, pass over the facilitation of the conversation, you delegate the facilitation of the conversation to someone else. 
And I know that in other circumstances, there are um, there is some concern about doing that because uh, people who are uh, chairs of meetings feel like, well, I'm going to lose my control, I'm going to lose my authority, credibility in the meeting if I hand it over to someone else. But I think what you're telling me is that actually that isn't what, what happens in practice. Yeah, so I guess I think it depends on who's in the room, again, you know, and what the trust level is of the people that are coming to the meeting. Uh, so we've been doing the meetings in the pediatric ICU for the last 18 months and doing them in this structured, you know, way. Um, but I think initially when we started, it wasn't like that and people didn't really know what they were walking into. But we do have a core group of people that can facilitate, that have learned those skills that we can uh, count on to be in the room to do that. So we actually now, I used to start by chairing and facilitating the meetings. And now what we do is we just have this core group of people that we rotate around. And so that then it's not dependent on one person as well. And you do get a little bit of a different uh, variety in variation because everyone has a different style so he talks about me and using radical candor and someone else might explore the same case but in a slightly different way and engage people in the room so i actually think it's good to have variation uh, as long as you're continuing to maintain a safe space yes so um you so you mentioned a, a couple of things in your um, remarks um, you focus very much on structure and the importance of having uh, a highly effective structure and one that people know, so people understand what structure is before they arrive, so they know what they're walking into. But you've also have mentioned quite a few times the importance of safety and trust for the participants in the meeting. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's um, a uh, a very important standard in our model is how you create that uh, uh, psychological safety. But I wonder whether you could say something about how you do that. Yeah, so I think it's taken a long time. And again, it goes down to culture. And it's not just about the meeting itself, but it's about the relationships that you have outside of the meeting and how you you know conduct yourself within your clinical space. So, you know, we work really hard hard to not only meet up with people that are involved in the cases and do the reflection and get their perspective, but also just developing those relationships between departments and within your own team locally within the intensive care unit to actually help to foster that culture. Because I actually don't think that you can expect people to come into a room for an M&M &M meeting and talk very openly and transparently with trust uh, and respect if you're not actually doing it outside of the room. And so even just debriefing events that happen on the floor as they happen and, and being able to be open and honest in those moments is, is really important. And I don't necessarily know that we're there yet, but it's a work in progress. So I guess I kind of see that happening in parallel. So as you develop the speaking up for safety culture within the intensive care unit, for example, that will translate into the the meetings in which we're talking about some of these challenging cases and the safety that people feel when they're in Yes. So when you're talking about developing the right sort of culture for those meetings, what 
you're saying is that that doesn't happen in isolation, that there's a broader cultural issue about how the team works and how the, how people communicate and talk about issues as they arise on the floor, which um, gets uh, translated into the meeting or is supported, also supported by the way in which the meeting is conducted. So, uh, and, and the other thing you mentioned was the importance of the sorts of conversations that you have with people outside of the M&M meeting itself and how that can then feed into more productive or effective relationships uh, in the meetings. Yeah, and I also think within the meeting, when we talk to, when we reflect back on the structure, it's actually having the opening so that people know we're going to talk about the basic assumption and setting the scene for why we're here, talking a little bit about the safety science, and then going into the cases and doing a synopsis review of the case and a timeline, and then bringing it back to contributing factors and systems issues so that people actually know that you're going to see a little box up on the screen that has the different contributing factors that might have led to an adverse event if this was an adverse event for example and it's interesting when you get people into the room that have never seen the little box before we used when we first started doing this the people that reviewed the case would actually tick the contributing factors so if it was a staffing issue or an equipment issue medication error and we had some visiting teams come in and actually see the box up with the tick and they took that very affronting like they did something wrong mm -hmm because the box was ticked for their case. And so we modified and we went back and said, actually, let's let the group decide what the contributing factors were based on the discussion. And then we come up with the, the issues and then some recommendations based on that. And we use that to help facilitate the conversation. Uh, so we've actually, over time, modified what we're doing based on feedback in the room. And to me, that means that people feel like they can say, you know, actually, that didn't feel OK for me. Yes. I wanted to yes. do that felt very uncomfortable. Could we look at doing it a different way and then we yeah. modify what we're doing? Yeah. So that's an interesting point you raised there, which is about the importance of reflection. So the M&M meetings themselves are um, a reflective practice in terms of looking at uh, what's happened in uh, various clinical situations. But what you're also saying is that it may be important to also apply a reflective lens to the meeting itself so that the meeting itself becomes a place where people can speak up and say oh um, if if they felt uncomfortable at certain points or they felt that uh, a particular um, issue was glossed over or not handled well that you're creating a, an environment in which people are able to speak up in the room, not just about the case, but also about the way in which the case is being uh, spoken about. Yeah, so about the process. And I think when we go back to facilitation, one of the things that we thought was really important was the group of facilitators and planners for the meeting, if you will, meet in advance to go through the cases and actually talk about what we think the themes are that are going to potentially come out as discussion points so that we can actually discuss it amongst ourselves about what we think, how we would uh, facilitate that. And then after the meeting, we meet again a day or two later when we're writing the minutes to then reflect on how the session went. So how did you think that went? Do you think people felt okay? Because at the moment, we don't have a structured way of evaluating. So, you know, when you look at your eighth principle of facilitation yes. to know 
we do an evaluation form at the end, but we don't specifically talk about psychological safety and structure. Uh, and so that's something that we're trying to build on and kind of um, create uh, as the next phase moving forward is how do we actually evaluate that these sessions are effective. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I, I can see that that the, the structure that you're talking about is one which extends beyond the meeting itself. So you're talking about the way in which you plan for the meeting to take place, the way in which you then reflect on and review how the meeting went. So it's not simply a case of, you know, uh, some very sort of uh, uh, bare minutes about uh, um, who said what. There's also a process uh, for you to reflect on how did we do? Did we get to the really important areas there? Were we focused on uh, the right things? Did we achieve what we were trying to achieve? So that um, that process of seeing the meeting not just as being the time that you spend um, uh, together, but also the preparation time, the um, engagement with key stakeholders, outside of the meetings and then that reflective process uh, following the meeting so that you're uh, constantly thinking about ways in which uh, the meeting itself can be improved. Yeah and I think an example of that for example last month we did the meeting and there was a lot of conversation around the CEC um, new guidelines around M&M and you know some people weren't familiar with it and we we talked about NRCA and all the language around RCAs is now changing and so we had a whole conversation around that and so as part of the minutes we then send the link around so we sent the link to the CEC website for the M&M or if in in a different context we'd send an article that relates to safety too or something like that so that people actually know don't just have the minutes but they have a follow-on of the conversation that was generated and what that means so that then they can learn a little bit as well in the process about um, safety improvement methodology and things like that. Yes, yes, that's fantastic. Thanks for listening to this podcast with Dr. Andrea Christoph and David Sweeney on creating safety in M&M discussions. I really hope you enjoyed it. Please note this is one of a three-part series and I hope that you have the opportunity to listen to the other two segments as Andrea and David continue the conversation on the power of effective facilitation to enable psychological safety in M&M meetings. Listen in as David and Andrea discuss their insight and lessons learned from their experiences of supporting the leadership in M&Ms. I'm Debbie Draby from the Clinical Excellence Commission, and I'm pleased that you can join us in this conversation with senior leaders Um, as they explore the guiding principles of effective morbidity and mortality meetings in action. This podcast series has been developed to explore the experiences and insights from leading M&M meetings. Look out for more podcasts as we continue this conversation with clinicians as they share their journey and learning. I hope you find it useful. And if you'd like to contribute to this conversation, please let me know. Thank you.